Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Mark Andreessen from A16Z famously proclaimed a decade ago that software is eating the world. His prophecy has proved prescient. Cloud computing enabled the rapid, cost-effective deployment of software, startups flourished, and venture capital returns have been phenomenal. Venture capital is a fascinating investment area whose many days in the sun shine brightest this year. Institutional portfolios with large venture allocations soared to their best year in history. And yet, parts of venture are unique in being both efficient and unactionable. Many believe that Sequoia or Benchmark will produce returns at the top of the pack, but there's not much action anyone can take to participate. This miniseries explores the industry, focusing on some favorites of institutional investors who are still investable to those in the loop. Each has a great differentiated story to share and something to prove. That said, this field moves quickly, so as the disclaimer goes, past accessibility is not a guarantee of future capacity. My guest on the seventh episode of Ventures Eating the Investment World is Joelle Caden, the founder and managing partner of Accolade Partners, a $3.6 billion venture fund of funds that invests across early stage, growth, blockchain, and empowerment strategies, and is one of the most respected firms in the business. Our conversation covers Joelle's nearly two decades in technology investment banking, the launch of Accolade into the dot-com bubble, and its evolution over 20 years. We then discuss her perspectives on the four ways to win in venture capital, assessing culture, adding value as an LP, portfolio construction, re-upping decisions, and investing in the current environment. Ventures Eating the Investment World is brought to you by Omni. 
Omni helps private capital investors track and analyze individual deals while providing comprehensive financial and legal insights across their portfolio. It houses the largest database of investment transactions in the private markets extracted directly from executed agreements, including the legal terms, co-investor details, liquidity preferences, valuations, and round sizes. With that information, investors can make faster investment decisions, benchmark deal terms, understand market trends, and enhance portfolio analytics. Omni's clients include leading venture funds, corporate venture groups, family offices, and endowments, including a number of past guests on the show. You can learn more at omni.fund. That's A-U-M-N-I dot fund. Please enjoy my conversation with Joelle Caden in the seventh episode of Venture is Eating the Investment World. Joelle, great to see you. Ted, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, why don't we start way back with your background pre the founding of Accolade? Sure. So my career really began at a firm called Alex Brown & Sons, which sadly was sold ultimately to Deutsche Bank in 1999. I joined the firm in 1982 as the chief financial officer of what was then called ABS Ventures. We had a whopping $23 million under management. Actually, I say we were the first micro VC. We just didn't know it at the time. One of the partners in the investment banking division handed me a box, a cardboard box, and said, here, these are our limited partners. Go figure out how to set up this firm. So I was the chief financial officer, which sort of meant that I did everything but investing. So we had no systems. We had to report to limited partners. We had to set up our financials. And I remember distinctly in 1983, which was, again, a time when technology was sort of going crazy. And this is a time of data communications and infrastructure, things that don't exist anymore. And there was this company called CXC Communications, and they made a product called The Rose, and it was valued at $100 million. And I was like, there are no financials for this company. How can this be possible? So we've gone through many cycles of booms and busts. And shortly thereafter, there was a pretty significant bust. But it was really more of an entrepreneurial venture to set up the firm. The investment bankers actually were the ones who made the investments, so to speak. We were tagging along firms like Greylock and J.H. Whitney in making small investments alongside them. And so... Where did that path take you from that first experience? So I quickly realized that I probably was not going to be a successful venture capitalist, even though I was given the opportunity to transition to doing investing. That was largely informed after I had worked on a bunch of private placements for the firm and particularly with a bunch of disk drive companies with an individual named Frank Atassi, who immediately decided that he did not want a woman on the deal team, at which point I thought, this is probably not a good place for me to be, particularly since I didn't have a technical background. I had an MBA. And so I quickly transitioned to working in capital markets in the investment banking division. And so what did you see there? So it was a pretty wild time at Alex Brown. I mean, over the course of the ensuing 18 years that I was there, we became the leading underwriter for venture-backed initial public offerings. I mean, the firm had an amazing franchise in so many different sectors whether it was consumer taking Starbucks public or whether it was taking Qualcomm public in the semiconductor world, America Online, and then every software company you can think of starting 
in 86 with Microsoft and Oracle, Autodesk, Cadence Design, you name it, we did it. It was an amazing ride. We had strong tailwinds in the equity market for basically 15 years. And so how did you evolve to the point where you decided to leave and start Accolade? Well, I wish I could say it was a logical progression. Basically, what happened was the global financial crisis of 1998, the first one, which was long-term capital management, Alex Brown had the misfortune of deciding to sell itself to Bankers Trust. And in the summer of 1998, our stock went from 145 to 45. And every call that I took was, you're not going to be able to roll your short-term commercial paper, which, as you know, is how banks finance themselves. I really thought our stock was going to zero. We were eventually bought for $93 a share in cash by Deutsche Bank in 1999. I left at the end of 99 just because after two mergers in two years was too, too many. And what was the plan? There really wasn't a plan. The plan was I had always been interested in investing and starting in 1995 had made a number of investments in funds along with several of my colleagues. We formed a small limited partnership And actually, our first investment was with Technology Crossover Ventures run by Jay Hogue. And that was our first investment. And then once you have one investment, you have to have more than one investment. And so we made several. I just decided we would take some of those positions and roll them into a fund. Started raising the fund in the end of 99 and closed on $114 million in March of 2000, right when the NASDAQ hit the peak of 5,000 was a lot of individuals. There was one large institution, but really no one should have been giving me any money. (laughs) Why do you say that? Well, I really didn't know anything about portfolio construction or manager selection or anything. It was a really interesting time. And I always say people sort of caught the last train leading the internet station and that wasn't a good time to be investing either. So it was a really rugged time. You start at that auspicious time, right at the peak of the bubble. What was it like going through that as a startup business? So I think because I had a capital market lens, I've always been a public market person in terms of the discipline that I think the public market imposes. And I knew a lot of people who were in the private equity business, and they had been telling me about what was going on in the bond market. And so I was watching how nothing could get financed. And so it was clear that we were nearing the end of this cycle. But, you know, you can't do anything about it because you've made commitments to venture funds. And so you're sitting there knowing you're about to watch a train wreck and there's very little you can do. That was a moment of serious reflection to try and think with the capital that we still had available to commit, what kind of course corrections could we make? to try and earn our way into some sort of reasonable return over the next several years. Venture at the time funded everything that was going to fund WorldCom and MCI and all these next generation, what were called CLEX, competitive local exchanges. And so they all needed lots of infrastructure and it cost $50 million just to start one. And I think it became clear that All those companies were going bankrupt, literally bankrupt, and they would not be buying any equipment. And all the firms that had semi along the way of building that infrastructure that was necessary for those carriers had no business. And so they all went to zero. So what did you do in your business? Well, it was a pretty dark time. Remember, I started the firm in 2000. 2001 was 9-11. 
So we go from the collapse of the internet bubble in 2000 to 9-11, which was a horrendous time for our nation, and the ensuing years were pretty bleak. We were a $114 million fund of funds. When it was presented to investors, it was presented as an early stage focused venture fund of funds. We took, as I mentioned, these slots that we had with managers that we had funded previously and said we would be funding those managers, but at a reasonable size, given our pool of capital was $114 million. And then when the internet bubble burst and it became clear that continuing to fund early stage venture capital in the face of a nuclear winter was probably not a great idea, we slowly migrated to funding some firms like Golden Gate that were investing in cash flow positive businesses. So what happened with the progression of the business when you went through a bear market? I did not raise fund one, fund two, and fund three in in rapid succession. So we were able to, in 2005, we were able to raise our second fund, which was $150 million. And somehow or another, I had the good fortune to find a capital partner that gave me $50 million, and we were able to raise $100 million. In that fund, we articulated that 50% of what we did was going to be early stage venture, and 50% was going to be growth equity, which is not what we hear about in the growth stage today, but more firms which we backed, like Toma Bravo in their first software-focused fund, Excel KKR in their second fund, which was really their first software-focused fund, firms like that. So take me through from that founding, and we can fast forward to today, but what was the rest of the evolution of Accolade as a business and the products that you had from that, say, second fund that was half early stage, half growth equity to where you are today? So we pretty much stayed the course there because the next time that we went to raise capital was 2008. So, (laughs) (laughs) and we had raised half of that fund right before the global financial crisis and then spent the ensuing two and a half years raising the second half of that fund. So I would say the first 10 years were challenging. So from that time forward, the other thing, as you know, it takes a long time in our asset class to demonstrate performance. And while we had a high degree of confidence that we had invested in some great managers and had a pretty unique strategy, which was not well understood at the time because nobody was investing in growth equity and software, really, except for a handful of managers, all of a sudden our numbers started to manifest themselves. And so we started getting some traction, particularly with the consultants that intermediate a lot of the firms that invest in our asset class. And also in parallel with that, spent a lot of time building the team and the team is terrific. So fast forward to today, we now have multiple products. We have our traditional growth equity venture fund of funds. We have a dedicated growth equity fund of funds. We have a significant effort in blockchain, which started in 2019. And then we have an effort in what we call the empowerment fund, where we're investing in women and diverse managers. But it took 20 years to get to that point. So as we sit here today, I'd love to hear from all the lessons you've learned over those 20 years, how you describe your investment philosophy. So I think a couple of things that we've learned over the years that are very important, which is one, pretty obvious. I mean, there's nothing earth shattering here. Portfolio construction matters a lot. We have fairly small funds. We now are in the luxurious position of being able to raise more money 
than we want, but we've stayed very disciplined in terms of our fund size. We believe a lot in concentration. We make big bets. We're not afraid of anchoring first-time managers. In fact, I think that's been the source of accolades outperformance is not only identifying managers early on in their career, but also sectors of the market that are interesting earlier than others. So for example, investing in seed funds or investing in a fintech focus fund, et cetera. And so those are some of the things we think about, which is we always say Accolade is a very research intensive firm, but we continue to hustle. We don't always do the re-up. We're open to new ideas. And I think that's brought us a lot of success. So I'd love to break down each of those. And maybe the best place to start is manager selection. There are lots and lots of venture managers of all shapes and sizes, and you have concentrated portfolios. So why don't you walk me through that process, maybe from the top of the filter and how you go about figuring out who you want to invest with? Right. So as I mentioned, we have a terrific team. And prior to COVID, I think we spent most of our life on an airplane. So it's really trying to make sure that we're aware of all the managers that we should be tracking in some way, shape, or form. Recently, there's just been such a proliferation of managers that it would be disingenuous for me to say that we can continue to do that, particularly on the seed side, where there are 1,000, 2,000 managers these days. But we are very fortunate that we've backed some terrific firms that we've stayed with, Excel since 2000, Andreessen since Fund 2. So we do have our brand name Series A managers that are important to the portfolio. But do you have a distinctive lens on a universe of founders that you can access that other people can't? And so we want managers that are accretive to our portfolio. And so we think about that a lot as well. We like to spend a lot of time with our managers. We like to get to know them. We have deep knowledge of their portfolios. We sometimes visit portfolio companies And so we really want to have a 360-degree view of what it is that we're investing in. You know, we invest in funds. They last 10 years, allegedly, but really they last 15 years, and they're not liquid. So we better make the right decision a priori. Who do you think wins in venture? So I think that's really changed over time. I mean, when I started in the business, you could name the number of firms that, quote, mattered on two hands. So... That's not the case today. And it's a really noisy market. As you know, there's a massive amount of capital in all shapes, sizes. It comes from the U.S. It comes from all over the world. It is a global business. And so it is extremely competitive right now. We think there are basically four ways to win in venture capital today. And this was not the case a couple of years ago. One, we've seen the emergence of firms that write checks really quickly and are extremely aggressive, whether it's Tiger Global, D1, Co2, name your favorite firm. That's just a very different strategy. They don't take board seats, but they're extremely knowledgeable about the sectors in which they invest, and they pick what they think is the best cohort of companies addressing that sector. There are the brand name funds, obviously firms like Sequoia, Andreessen, Excel, they can win based on reputation. Then we believe sector specialists, particularly early on in the lives of companies, have a reason to win, whether that's in fintech firms like Ribbit, QED, firm like Transformation Capital and Healthcare. These are each huge industries, fintech, healthcare, where 
deep domain expertise and also knowledge of the regulatory framework is critically important to the success of the underlying companies. And then maybe this is somewhat self-serving, but we are hearing this a lot, particularly from young founders, that diversity on the cap table really matters. And so I think firms that offer that lens, either by having available individuals who can serve as board members, or perhaps even more important, the ability to recruit talent that's diverse to companies, increasingly is something that's very important to these young technology companies as they grow quickly. I'd love to dive into each one of those a bit. So let's just start with size and capital. We've seen this movement, say, led by Tiger Goldblum, high velocity, seemingly less price sensitive and kind of arbitraging this late stage private in the public markets. Where do you think that goes? So what? I'm not sure that I'm smart enough to really know the answer to that. But I think it's a different philosophy. I think it is very much of a portfolio approach that is born out of their experience in the public markets. And so I think they are probably underwriting to also a different return profile than what we aspire to get in venture capital when we back companies at the earliest stages. So I think you've got to keep that in mind. What I'm hearing is in that cohort of companies in that specific sector, they hopefully will have picked the one that's going to be the statistical outlier and be the home run investment. And so obviously right now we're experiencing a pretty dramatic correction in the public market where I think the public market companies are much cheaper than what we're seeing done in the private market. But maybe over time that works its way through. I mean, they've been extraordinarily successful over 20 years, and I'm not sure I'd be the one to bet against that. But it's just a different strategy philosophy that's much more akin to being a public portfolio manager. So with your lens and interest in getting into some of these early themes, I imagine in the last couple of years, you saw these as a potential opportunity. And I'm kind of curious how you thought about assessing them and in this case, not decided not to invest. We don't like investing in later stage venture. We believe in venture, you need to be early or you need to be a series A brand name manager and early, whereby you secure your ownership and knowledge of the businesses very early. We think on a risk reward basis and our data shows this in our funds over the past five funds that investing in growth equity on a risk return basis is a far more compelling opportunity and attractive opportunity, particularly given its liquidity profile than late stage venture, where, as you pointed out earlier, it's really an arbitrage between the private market and the public markets. So we get our liquidity and our sort of later stage exposure through growth equity. Most of those companies can sustain themselves through positive cash flow, which enables us to weather cycles very well. Our 2008 fund is one of our best performing funds as a result of that. And let's talk a bit about brand. Everyone thinks about venture being a serially correlated business where the benchmarks or the XLs or the Sequoias have access that others don't. What do you see when you look through the companies in the portfolios of the managers you invest in about that story and whether it plays out in practice? Yeah, I think... Venture capitalists will tell you that the team that you back matters the most. And there are extraordinary numbers of very talented teams coming out of large, successful technology companies, whether they're Stripe or Facebook or Google. And so 
because they've been associated with those companies, they can pick those people out when they exit those companies and get to know them early on. And I think founders will tell you that while they do pick firms, they really pick the individual partner. So if you're a marketplace consumer-facing company, your number one draft pick is Jeff Jordan at Andreessen Horowitz. And you get a lot of ancillary services from Andreessen, but you really want Jeff on your board. So I think part of it is reputation that's been built over time in terms of their level of sophistication and knowledge of how to shepherd these companies to the IPO market or to a trade sale if that ends up being the route that they pursue. So I think that that is true. And I think it's more a function of the domain expertise of the individual partners and then the support that they get from the partnership as a whole. And that sort of feeds on itself where I think people do have a sense of, I always call them the 10 top five venture funds. Because everybody has a different list and it does move around a little bit. And it's a little bit unfair because there are firms that have done a spectacular job that in different sectors that don't get as much visibility. This whole industry is predicated in some sense on disruption, right? On new companies creating new businesses. And yet one of the key ways to win is to be the established brand. So I'm kind of curious, how do you track the sustainability of any of these brands over time? I don't think that's the only way to win, as we discussed with brand, but but I think it is one way to win, and you can just judge by the consistency and their ability to be identified with companies that matter hugely in terms of generating those outside return. There's something to that. You know, you can just look at the portfolios and see how often they end up in the companies that are really the fund drivers or fund returners even. So let's still go through domain expertise. Are there sectors that are more important than others where that domain expertise sets is more impactful as a venture capitalist? Yeah, although they get discovered pretty quickly, right? The generalist firms have moved very aggressively into fintech. Ten years ago, it was Ribbit and QED. QED mostly is a family office, but still very active in fintech because fintech wasn't a thing. But then last year, I think I saw data suggesting that fintech was the biggest category in venture capital in terms of accruing dollars, which means that it's not just specialist firms. It just becomes well-known, and then generalist firms perhaps have an individual partner or a number of partners that end up focusing on those areas. So information travels very quickly in the venture community. So they have to be big sectors of the economy and things that are changing for some reason. And so I think we all understand that COVID really catalyzed changes in terms of how we interact with financial institutions and accelerated the change in that behavior by people will say a decade. That's also true of healthcare, where telemedicine had been something been talked about forever. And all of a sudden overnight, it catalyzed a massive change in consumer behavior. And it's not going to go back the other way going forward. And so companies that may have languished that all of a sudden gotten huge tailwinds. And so Sometimes it's the confluence of domain expertise and some very important tailwinds that makes you look like you've (laughs) been a genius. But to your point, this is an industry that does thrive on that kind of disruption. And being able to capitalize on that is what's really important. So I'd love you to go through this lens of diversity and see what did you see that supported this as a potential way to win in the space? 
We really started to see a cohort of interesting managers develop both women-led and diverse managers over the course of the last several years. And I think that only accelerated. Some of it is COVID. Some of it is post-George Floyd. Some of it is people just looking around the table and recognizing that the other partners really didn't look like them and they didn't want to spend the next 10 years trying to figure out how to be successful within a more traditional organization the rise of the solo GP. I mean, I don't think it's any one particular thing, but we saw people who were extraordinarily talented who were struggling to raise institutional capital and still struggle today to raise sizable funds. And so recognize that that's really an inefficiency in the market. And we all know that that's where one should be investing is in inefficient markets where we think individuals can have a differentiated lens on what the opportunity set is out there. And so we struggled mightily to raise capital to address that opportunity, and we're fortunate to have a separately managed account with a handful of large institutions. But it wasn't easy. It's a non-consensus idea, very non-consensus. So you're hearing a lot more about it, maybe moving away from non-consensus. And I'm curious what you've seen in the difference between the talk of interest and then the capital flow? I still think it's a big chasm. I think institutions are getting their feet wet a little bit. There's a lot more discussion about it. And there's a big conflict about, is it going to compromise our returns? Because these endowments of foundations and academic institutions are the sources of capital for your mission-based activities, for your scholarships, And so there is that tension. And what we're trying to demonstrate is that you don't have to compromise returns by investing in women-led and diverse managers. But there's been no data on that. And so it is very much of an early days in terms of trying to prove that out. And so I think people are separating out a small pool of capital to sort of run an experiment and see what happens with it. But it's not core to their portfolios at this point. So once you've sort of laid through the different strategy buckets that could work, there's then this whole dynamic of the team and the culture of the organization. And I'd be really curious from all your experience to learn a little more about your perspectives on what works in terms of a venture capital organization. Everybody goes through growing pains. None of us is perfect. But I've been super impressed with the quality of the team's that we've been with for a long time and how they've evolved over time and how they haven't had a lot of turnover, which I find remarkable because they provided opportunities for team members to grow from within or to own different products or to lead significant efforts, et cetera. And so I think that's super important because it is an apprentice business. It takes a long time to be a good investor. Pattern recognition is something you always hear about. That doesn't happen overnight. And so I think it's really important that our managers have great cultures at their firm. And every firm's different. Every personality is different. And so spending time and really understanding the team. One thing that I've told our team is that the younger ones, like when one of our now partners was a vice president, I said, you need to get to know everybody who's a vice president level person at our managers. And lo and behold, Some of them have gone on to lead individual fund efforts, et cetera. So we really try and permeate the whole organization because 
just meeting with the top people doesn't really necessarily tell you what's going on underneath at the firm. And so we really encourage broad participation by our team with those people who, you know, associates should know associates and the VPs should know the VPs and the partners know the partners. And, and so we try and really over time develop that sense of the firm as a whole. I know you pride yourself on being a value-added partner to everyone in your ecosystem, and I'd, I'd love to hear how you think about that and how you and your team go about it in practice. Yeah, so I think it's just something that's core to human nature to want to try and be helpful, right? So as I say, we do not want to be a Monday morning quarterback. We do not want to pass judgment on what it is that our managers are doing. But if we can make connections between our managers and areas that we understand deeply, if we can make introductions, if we can, Aram, one of my partners who's a fairly recent graduate of Stanford Business School, has a great network. And if he can help with recruiting for people into our different firms where we know that they're looking for someone at their portfolio company levels, if we can make customer introductions, we obviously make a lot of introductions to limited partners, partially because we do back first-time funds, and it's so important to help them in the capital raise. And I think we've gotten known at being having a pretty good nose for finding talent in terms of finding young managers. And so those introductions are so critical to the success of those managers. So however we can be helpful without being overbearing or whatever you want to call it, we want to be a thought partner. What are the characteristics of a first-time fund that you'll invest with relative to one that you take seriously but don't? Oh, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is partially, and I don't mean to dodge your question, I mean, partially, you know, we have a portfolio, right? So we have a fairly robust portfolio of managers, and we like many of them or most of them or all of them. So to add a manager is right now is somewhat of a challenge unless we have a new product where we have the capacity to add lots of managers. So sometimes it is, is this manager accretive to our portfolio in terms of what it is that they do? But basically, we like people who are trained in the business. They've apprenticed somewhere else. For us, we don't need a referenceable track record and attributable track record, which I know is very important to certain institutions. But we can sort of gauge how good is this person in terms of being a deal partner, in terms of sourcing, in terms of really having a differentiated reputation in the community. Part of it is, as our managers get bigger, we really like smaller fund sizes. So we have had a lot of $150 million growth equity managers that end up scaling over time. But initially, Maybe they had a pledge fund before they started their firm. And so we can see a bit of a track record. There's a small team. They've worked together. They know each other well. They're coachable. We can help them understand how to build an institutional firm. So there are lots of ingredients. There's no checklist, but obviously portfolio construction matters to us. Discipline, how they think about liquidity, how they think about things like recycling. Do they fully invest the funds? Things like that that are tactical versus actually the investing piece of the firm. But all of those ingredients really matter to drive returns. So you mentioned portfolio construction a few times. What is your axe on what makes a good venture portfolio construction? Yeah. So, well, particularly in venture, as you know, particularly if you're investing at the earliest stages of company formation, owning a lot of a company that ends up being a category defining company or a fund returning company 
is so critically important. And that's hard to do. That implies that you are a highly valued individual to gain that right, to have that kind of ownership on the cap table. It's very hard in this environment where there's so much capital to buy up ownership as things progress. And so that's why I think increasingly you're seeing every large firm raise a seed fund because they want to get in sooner to get that ownership and be able to write that big check and preempt the Series A. Very competitive market. But but that's what's really important is also having sufficient reserves to be able to put additional capital into your winners. And the corollary to that would be for those companies that seem to be struggling, either find a reasonable exit path for them or maybe not fund those companies. But but really understanding that, because in venture, it's missing the upside, not protecting the downside that's going to lead to not have a successful fund. The most important thing is being in those right companies and owning enough of them. When there's all this money sloshing around, I'm curious what you see on the terms that the venture funds are offering today. Carry is going up. Fees are staying the same regardless of fund size. I don't know what to tell you. There's a shift in the balance of power, right? The limited partners don't have a lot of leverage in negotiating terms with certain funds. And so to me, the more egregious ones are early funds where they tell us that the lawyers say that these are industry standard terms. And I'm like, your lawyers are not writing you any checks as far as I've noticed. But I think the lawyers are at fault for pushing some very aggressive terms for first or early funds. But if you've been a successful firm, you can dictate your terms and there's no shortage of capital available to fund your investments. So limited partners don't have a lot of leverage on terms at that point with a fund. So you mentioned earlier that there are funds that you'll invest with that you decidedly won't re-up for the next fund. And I'm curious, what are some of the examples, for whatever reason, that you didn't want to re-up? Usually, it's never any one thing. It's usually that the fund size over time evolves to be too large relative to what we think the opportunity is or what we think the team's capability are. So sometimes a team that's going to have a great fund at $500 million is not going to have a great fund at a billion. And that's just simple math. And so... That's probably the biggest reason that we stop investing with someone. The other reason is, you know, we have a lot of data and sometimes funds aren't performing consistently at the level that we would have anticipated they would or relative to other opportunities that we have in our portfolio. And so it can be a function of return. You know, obviously, we've had some situations where there have been some team blowups. Those are pretty easy to pass on in the future, but those are actually... Looking back, most of them could not have been predicted. Things happen. You want to avoid that as much as possible. But over 20 years and many funds, it's going to happen. But I would say those are the major ones. What do you see as your required rate of return when you're investing in a fund? When we invest in an early stage seed-focused venture fund, we would like them to do better than 5x. For an established venture fund, Occasionally, you'll get an outlier, but 3 to 4x is still on a consistent basis, not easy to do. In growth equity, I think we've been extraordinarily lucky lately just because there's so much capital in the space that those managers are doing above 3, 4, some, some of them. Some of them have done a lot better than that. And so, again, on a risk-adjusted basis, it's been a pretty attractive place to be. But that's sort of the ballpark. So as you look back... What are some of the misses of funds that 
you were right there and for whatever reason decided to pass on? Oh, gosh, there's so many. (laughs) The first one that comes to mind, because it's so painful, is Emergence. We had the opportunity to invest in Emergence, too. And I think because we knew so much about software when they said that they were a SaaS-focused fund and they had put $2 million into Salesforce, we were like, well, that's not that unique, partially because we had this growth equity portfolio that was focused on software. And so we had seen that evolution. And we just totally missed the opportunity to invest in that fund. It, I think they've had spectacular returns over multiple fund cycles. And that's particularly painful because we knew them well and we had the opportunity to invest. And we just, frankly, it's not we, it's me. I missed it. No one else did me. (laughs) I'll take, it's on me. I don't know that there are other examples that are that apparent, that obvious, but we've missed many funds that have gone on to do exceptionally well. And are there characteristics of the ones that you look back on that you missed that you've been able to identify that there was something in your analysis or judgment that would tell you the next time we see that, we will invest? I think it goes back to the team. Look, the world of venture, particularly when you're investing in technology, evolves pretty quickly, right? So I think the mistake you can make is thinking you're an expert in something when you're not. And that you really have to bet on the team and their ability to sort of ride the next wave. And that's really critically important. And so I would say that's the one thing that coming to a judgment too soon based on allegedly some knowledge of the portfolio and you're looking at it and you decide it doesn't look that great because it takes a long time for there to be returns, right? I mean, it takes 10 years. So sometimes it's just hard to tell and you make a bad judgment call. So you've been through 2000, you've been through 08, and here we are sitting in 2022. And there's a lot of money sloshing around. Valuations are really rich. I'm kind of curious, how do you approach investing when there's a feeling that things have been awfully good for a while until obviously very recently, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. So look, it's a long cycled asset class. I think people understand you've heard it a hundred times. You can't time the vintage that you're investing in. You know, if you invest early and it takes seven to 10 years for these companies to reach maturity, while valuations might have escalated today, it really matters more what the exit environment is going to look like than what the entrance environment looks like. I mean, that's one of the reasons we don't love late stage venture, this sort of growth round, the the very expensive, very momentum driven rounds. We think that's where there's the greatest degree of risk. And as you alluded to earlier, we really haven't seen that kind of style of investing in venture capital before. We've definitely seen momentum investing in the public market, but we've not seen it in venture capital and TBD, whether that's a viable strategy. And so I think the thing to do is to remain disciplined, not chase any bright, shiny objects, and hope that our underlying managers are being disciplined themselves. I mean, I think the thing that is most concerning over the last couple of years is how quickly funds have come back to market, because we've learned that time diversification in investing really does matter. So you're not always investing your dollars at the peak of the market. By the way, this is what happened in 1999. Everybody invested their funds in one year. And that did not end well. And so I think that's the greatest risk is that you're deploying capital very aggressively 
in a frothy market in a short period of time. And so you don't, even if some of those investments didn't work out, you don't have the benefit of being able to participate in investments in a different environment that might be able to sort of save the performance of your fund. So when you bring that experience to bear, and now we're seeing it again, there's always this balance between you want to be supportive of the venture firms that you like and continue to like, but if they're coming back rapidly, you're losing that vintage year diversification. So how do you approach that? So I think a lot of, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues in the business, and I think <laughs> maybe this is a, a rationalization, but we sort of look at our allocation to a manager and we think of it over three years instead of over one fund cycle. And we sort of divide by three, knowing they're going to be back sooner. So you create your own time diversification that way. I'm not sure that's a great answer, but it doesn't mean that that particular fund won't be at risk, right? But at least your dollars that you normally would allocate to that manager are hopefully spread over a longer period of time. And you maybe we'll revert back to something else. It's hard to say. I think it's concerning. And also, the last decade has been very favorable to all of us that have been investing in this asset class. And there are a lot of young people within those venture firms that have never experienced a down market and certainly young founders that have never experienced inflation, rising interest rates, inability to raise capital, et cetera. So I think there's some painful lessons that are going to come down the road. I mean, it's not always going to be like it was, but it went on for such a long time that there's sort of a whole generation of people who haven't experienced what we've been through investing over 30 plus years. So if you go back 20 years ago, maybe the first time it felt like there were a lot of highly valued IPOs, a bunch of investors in the space started hedging programs, effectively hedging out the public stocks that were held by their venture managers. And I'm curious what you've heard about those activities this time around. Boy, the only person I remember doing that was David Swenson at Yale. Well, that's true. It's hard to execute that. You could buy that fund that shorts ARC, but that's not something we do. We're not in that business, but I haven't heard much of that happening. But, but obviously, when you see the correction that's happened in a lot of the companies that were really iconic in venture-backed companies in the last, really, it's in the last year where they're down 30 to 60%. Someone is selling these things pretty aggressively. So I think the momentum money is definitely moving out of that sector of the market. So I don't know how you hedge against something like that. I'd love to chat a little bit about blockchain. You have a new-ish vehicle last couple of years investing just in that space. How do you decide when to dive in for a new area like that to create a new fund? Well, first of all, let me be clear. I give 100% credit to my team on blockchain. So my partners have done an absolutely spectacular job of being very early five years ago in doing a deep dive. We have the luxury of time because we don't really do that many things. And blockchain really is an outgrowth of what we saw happening in the venture community. I would credit Chris Dixon at Andreessen and the team at Notation Capital, Small Fund in Brooklyn that really had an early lens on that this was going to be an important fundamental technology to pay attention to. And my team picked up on that and was all in. And so at the time that they engaged, there weren't that many managers. There were maybe 25 to 50. And so they could spend the time talking to people who had lots of time to talk to us because there was very little institutional interest in (laughs) what they were doing. And so 
when we thought about it, we thought about it two ways. One, we thought about it offensively in the sense that we thought this was a sector where our limited partners could make a lot of money. But we also thought about it defensively, that if this was in fact a fundamental technology, which we think it is, that it was highly disruptive to a lot of industries, not the least of which would be the venture capital industry. And therefore, it would behoove us to become knowledgeable about it. And we just, to some extent, got lucky. I mean, when we tried to raise the first blockchain fund of funds, it was a real struggle. And I teased the team that somehow or another, our success seemed correlated to the rise in the price of Bitcoin when it went from 5000 to 60000 Suddenly, interest Peak, but I think also institutional investors and in fairness started hearing from their venture capital firms that this was an area that they were focusing on intently and trying to understand how best to execute against the opportunity. And so we were in the right place at the right time with a very high quality group of managers that's hard to replicate. And so we've been very fortunate to grow that business very aggressively, but it's nothing that any of us could have predicted when we started this when no one had any interest in it. All right. So when we're talking a year from now, what's Accolade going to look like? Well, hopefully, you know, Accolade's going to look pretty similar to how it looks today because we've increased the team significantly over the last year. We've doubled our asset base. This is a period of digestion and hopefully we've invested in some sectors that are very volatile. I mean, blockchain is volatile. And so... I think it's important to get some proof points on the scoreboard before we make the next move. And so I think we have a pretty well-defined strategy in our core product, which is venture and growth equity. I think growth equity, you can sleep at night with. Blockchain, there's a lot of volatility (laughs) in that sector of the market, particularly as it becomes more liquid and a lot of the assets are in tokens that fluctuate wildly. So we think it's important to have a long-term view, but it'd be nice to get some proof points before we moved on to do anything very differently. So I think it's more of the same. So let's take it one layer down. We're a year from now talking about the venture industry. What do you think happens? I'm not sure that the people who have been very aggressive in writing checks and the velocity of capital deployment, I just think that's a hard train to stop. It's very appealing to the entrepreneurs to get lots of money at high valuations with not a lot to do on that. I think the firms that are at risk or those are sort of in no man's land that are still continue to want to do diligence and feel their value add, but yet they're not investing at the early stage and they're competing against massive pools of capital with a very accelerated deployment cycle. I think that's a tough place to win, but funds have 10 year lives and management fees go on. So attrition happens very slowly in our business. So I'm not sure it's that much different from what it is today. I mean, obviously, we're going through a very significant correction here. And I think there will be a lot more companies that disappear than farms or funds, because they won't be able to raise additional capital. And they were predicated on this sort of rapid deployment cycle. And also, as we've done in the past, we've overfunded a number of sectors. How many mental health, telehealth firms does the world need? I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you there probably be a couple that survive, but we have dozens of those and each one serves a different niche market. So I think there's going to be a big shakeout over time just because there are too many companies and not enough capital and, and frankly, not enough talent for those all those companies to be successful. So I suspect the shakeout will come more on the company side than on the fund side. 
Joelle, I want to get a chance to turn to some closing questions before I let you go. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, for people who know me, it's fly fishing. And for people who don't? <laughs> fly fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I think people would be surprised to find that that's something that I love to do. No cell phones, standing in nature. It's just a very therapeutic activity. And I was not very good at it for a very, very long time. And I learn every time. It's totally humbling. But the thrill of the perfect cast and catching a fish is pretty awesome. What's your most important daily habit? Well, I've always been someone who's loved to exercise in some way, shape, or form. I would say also post-COVID, I acquired a puppy, so walking my dog. And listening to your podcast, Ted. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? Lack of humility and lack of common courtesy. We're in a world that moves really quickly, and I think sometimes people forget how important it is to take time to be thoughtful and thankful. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I'll be accused of recency bias here, but I can't tell you the number of funds that come in and tell us that they're top decile performers based on, you know, a portfolio whose average life might be like six months because they've had a few markups in a couple of companies and they think that is a track record on which they're entitled to raise their subsequent fund. Until you have a fully liquidated portfolio, you really don't have returns. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Oh, that's an easy one. I would say, you know, first and foremost, Russ Carson, who's the founder of Welsh Carson Anderson and Stowe, believed in me very early on in my career. And um, I had the fortune to work very closely with that firm during my tenure at Alex Brown, where we were privileged to underwrite many of their companies, particularly in the healthcare sector. And in addition, and probably more importantly, is Russ is an extremely philanthropic and generous individual who now has devoted himself to, to a myriad of activities where he's made such an amazing difference and really wants no credit for it. He at Accolade is our true north, because sometimes I say to the team, what would Russ Carson do in this situation? And it's a pretty easy answer to figure out that that's the right thing. And then I would say the other person is, this goes back very early on in my life when the head of admissions at Stanford Business School took a risk on one of the more untraditional candidates and admitted me for some reason that I still to this day don't understand because... Uh, you know, I had absolutely no business being there, but I'm eternally grateful because obviously it changed the direction of, of my career and also gave me access to a community of incredible people and in my classmates and in alums going forward that I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I am a very direct person, and I don't necessarily understand how other people communicate. And I think over time, I've come to appreciate that individuals have very different communication styles. I remember listening to a podcast where some CEO, and I forget what the company was, but on people's cubicles, obviously dating myself, this is when people went to the office, right? He'd have like different color codes for what type of personality you were. So you knew how to approach that person. And while that sounds incredibly corny and sort of ridiculous, it actually makes a huge amount of sense because sometimes you just misinterpret what people are trying to say. I've made that mistake many times. And so I think really trying to put yourself in the shoes of the other person and trying to understand what they are trying to say without inferring what they're trying to say or taking it personally or 
misinterpreting what they're saying because of how they communicate. I'm guilty of that. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I had some very unique parents. So one, they were research scientists, and so they did what they loved. And they worked incredibly hard, and I learned the value of hard work, but also of really pursuing your passion and staying the course, because science takes a really long time to make discoveries. And I don't think I have the ability to focus the way they did, but I think their passion... They're also their charity in terms of being willing to help other people. Great. All right, Joelle, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think when you're young, you're in a hurry, right? You want to accomplish things quickly. And sometimes that's not possible. And so, you know, if I look back on the first 10 years of Accolade, we had so many headwinds, things that were not in your control. And so I think it's really important to segregate out what you can control and what you can't control and to really focus on those things that you can control and be really disciplined and recognizing that things do take time. You can't always be in a hurry to demonstrate what you think you're capable of. Times are tough and you've got to tough things out. And so I'm very grateful for the fact that we had time to sort of build the foundation of our firm in a very challenging time and we stuck with it. Joelle, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted, for giving me the opportunity, and I hope some of these lessons prove useful to people down the road. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. An important disclaimer from Janice Henderson Group, PLC. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principle and fluctuation of value.